Well, when you hear the word fasting, I wonder what comes to mind for you. My suspicion is that for many of us, when we hear the word fasting, the first thing that might come to mind is intermittent fasting. In case that's a new term for you, intermittent fasting, or IF as it's currently referred to, is one of the world's most popular health and fitness trends. As the name implies, it's an approach to health and weight loss that centers around regularly fasting from food, forget this, for up to 18 hours each day. This approach to health and wellness has proved to have broad appeal because fasting not only saves money on groceries, but it also simplifies life by reducing the number of meals that need to be prepared and clean. But all joking aside, we know the primary reason so many people are adopting this approach to eating, and it's simply this, it's getting them the results that they want. You see, those who practice intermittent fasting are finding that their minds are clearer, their waists are smaller, and even according to some studies, their lifespan is getting longer. And so it's no wonder that so many people are gravitating towards intermittent fasting. Even though it calls for a great deal of self-denial, people are willing to put that work in and embrace fasting because it has so many benefits that are so clearly seen. Well, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to this whole subject of fasting. And no, we're not gonna be talking about fasting for physical reasons or physical benefits. Rather, we're gonna be talking about fasting for spiritual reasons. And it's my hope that by the time we're done today, we will see clearly that just as fasting can help your body become more healthy and fit, so too fasting, when done the right way, can keep our souls healthy and fit. So I wanna invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, where we will continue in this sermon series covering the Sermon on the Mount, and we're gonna pick up in verse 16. Matthew chapter six, verse 16, Jesus says this, "'When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, "'for they disfigure their faces.'" that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. First this morning, I want you to see that fasting is a natural response to both grief and awe. Fasting is a natural response to grief and awe. You know, people do all kinds of crazy things for their bachelor and bachelorette parties. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been at those bachelor parties, haven't you? Absolutely. People go crazy at times celebrating being a bachelor or bachelorette right before they get married. And although my bachelor party back around March of 2004, although it was pretty tame, as you'll learn, it was highly unusual and unique. You see, my bachelor party was me and a couple of friends keeping it very low key. We actually went to a movie and in 2004, the movie that we naturally wanted to see was the movie you've probably heard of, The Passion of the Christ. And I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many people here saw The Passion of the Christ actually in theaters? Did you see it in a theater? Yeah, that's many of you. If you were a part of that experience, you know that it was a very unique and unusual experience in a movie theater. Because you know, oftentimes when we go to the movies, it's to lighten our mood or to enjoy a comedy. 
couple weeks ago, my daughter Eloise and I went to see the new Ninja Turtles and we had a ball in part because I love the junk food at the movie theaters, right? You love the popcorn with the fake butter. You love the soda, Sour Patch Kids, M&Ms. We love gorging on those foods when we go to the movies. And if you're anything like me, oftentimes by the time the previews have finished, you've already torn through all your food for the most part. But that's part of the fun of going to the movies is you love to eat those unhealthy but very satisfying snacks. Well, if you went to see The Passion of the Christ in the theaters, then you know it was a very different experience. Uh, For example, uh, the theater that I went to had a pub table with boxes of tissues for you to take so that as you were walking into the theater, you could have tissues because it was sort of assumed that you might cry. And it was obviously a very heavy movie. People would weep and sob, mascara would run down people's faces. And when they left the theaters, it was more like leaving a funeral than leaving a movie. One of the differences I noticed was that very few people did their normal stop at the concession stand. There just wasn't that much popcorn and food in the theater. And the few people that did buy those snacks and brought them in hardly touched them. Well, why is that? Why were people not in the mood to eat when they were watching The Passion of the Christ? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Fasting Losing your appetite, not eating, is just sort of a natural response to grief and awe in life. Perhaps you've been close with someone who has become a widow or widower, and you've seen them lose 15, 20, maybe 25 pounds, or maybe you know a close friend or relative that's gone through a divorce, and you've seen them lose just visibly and very uh, noticeably a lot of weight. Well, what's going on there? It's very natural. When we're consumed with sorrow, we tend to lose our appetite. Uh, Lynn Babb put it this way. She said, when we are deeply absorbed in grief, habitual activities and normal pleasures feel out of place. We wanna shout, stop the world. The one I loved is no longer alive and I can't bear it. That desire to stop everything normal and to let ourselves be absorbed by our loss and pain is manifested by stopping our consumption of food. We see this in the scriptures time and time again, when people encounter something where there's a lot of grief or awe, they simply lose their appetite. Jonathan is an example of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 34, uh, 1 Samuel really has this encounter where Jonathan is concerned for his best friend, David, because Jonathan's father, the king Saul, wants to kill David because of envy. And it says this in verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the second day of the month. Why? He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Perhaps you're familiar with 1 Samuel chapter one, verse seven, where we read of Hannah. Hannah, this righteous, beautiful soul who longed to have a child and who struggled for years with infertility and was mocked by people she knew because of it and had a very sort of boneheaded husband that didn't know how to really kind of comfort her and realize how important this was to her. We read in 1 Samuel 1, chapter seven, it says, it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to be provoked. In other words, when Hannah would go to the temple, people would mock her because she didn't have any children. And it says, Hannah wept and would not eat. 
In Acts chapter nine, verses eight through nine, we see the conversion of Saul, who you might better know as the apostle Paul. Saul persecuted the early church and on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, he has this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter nine, verses eight through nine, we read this. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. And we could go on if we had time and we could look at the example of Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy, where he's there fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, not so much because of sorrow or grief, but he's just awestruck at this encounter with the living God. Well, in each of these cases, as one author put it, quote, the sacredness of the moment was so palpable that eating seemed sacrilegious. So this morning, as we ponder, what's the whole point of fasting? What should we make of fasting? I think it's important to start, first of all, with acknowledging that oftentimes fasting is simply a natural response to when we encounter grief and awe. Continuing in our passage in verse 17, Jesus goes on and he says, when you fast, here's what I want you to do. I want you to anoint your head and wash your face. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Instead, I want you to anoint your head and wash your face. And when Jesus says this, what he's really getting at is he's simply saying, when you fast, I want you to continue with your normal skincare routine. I want you to do the same cosmetics you ordinarily do. Whatever you do on the days you're not fasting, that's how I want you to get ready get showered and present yourself to others and to the world. Well, why does Jesus say this? Well, if you deprive yourself of food for long enough, what's gonna happen? You're gonna experience the discomfort of hunger. You're gonna feel that churning in your stomach. You're gonna feel pain and you're gonna be uncomfortable. You're gonna be hangry, aren't you? And Jesus says, when you're experiencing the phenomenon of being hangry for the sake of fasting, don't broadcast that to everybody you know. Keep it a secret and keep it between you and the Lord. But this really raises a pretty important question, I think, as we're reading through this text. And that is this, why on earth would Jesus want us to fast and experience physical pain associated with hunger. Why would he want that for his children? Why would he want us to deal with that churning, achy feeling in our gut that is associated with hunger and fasting? Why would Jesus want that for us? Well, I'm pretty sure most of us have found ourselves in a situation where we've gotten together with a group of friends and been excited to have a good time. Maybe you get together on a Friday or perhaps it's a Saturday, but we all know what this is like to join together with friends and say, we're gonna have a great time tonight. You ever done that though? And once you get to the event, once you get to the location, it's kind of boring, it's kind of dull and it's kind of underwhelming. We've all been there. 
you get together, you're looking to have a good time, you wanna have a blast with your friends, but when you get together, for some reason, the magic's just not kinda there. And so what do we do in those situations? You know what we do. We've got a list of things to sort of try to lighten the mood in the room, right? First thing we're probably gonna do is we're gonna put some upbeat, loud music on, right? We're gonna find that feel-good Spotify playlist and we're just gonna have it pumping. Some of you might wanna get out on the dance floor when that music's going and try to lighten the mood and get into this festive atmosphere by dancing. Others of you, you're gonna order a whole bunch of pizza and a whole bunch of wings and still there are others that will turn to stimulants or drinking themselves silly. And why are they doing this? It's pretty clear. They wanna have fun. They want things to be happy and upbeat and enjoyable. And sometimes things are just kind of underwhelming and dull and boring. We, we all know what it's like to try to inject some life into a get together. But here's a question for you this morning. What do you do when you need to get yourself into a bad mood? What can be done when we're in this particular emotional state and we want to get into a bad mood. And that really brings us to our second point this morning, and that is this. Hear me clearly today, fasting is a great way to get into a bad mood. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Why on earth would we want to get into a bad mood? Well, fasting is a great way to get into a bad mood because as we saw last week, the reality is, just as there are times to be happy and rejoice and enjoy life, there are also times in which it is appropriate to mourn and grieve and any other response would be inappropriate. We saw in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one and four, these familiar verses. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to weep, but also a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and also a time to dance. For example, the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, this is part of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but we're also to weep with those who are weeping. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 the apostle Paul writes to this jacked up church in Corinth and there was some crazy sexual immorality going on there and they just sort of shrugged their shoulders at it. And listen to what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He addresses his congregation and he says, you are so proud of yourselves, but how should they have responded? Well, according to Paul, instead of being proud of yourselves or shrugging your shoulders, you should be mourning. You should be experiencing sorrow and you should be experiencing shame. In Jeremiah chapter six, verse 15, the Old Testament prophet has this message for God's people. Now bear in mind, this is after generations of God being patient and merciful and trying to get his people to come to their senses to repent and to return to him. And God gives this message through Jeremiah. He asks this sort of rhetorical question, Speaking of his people, it says, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. And how poetic is this? They don't even know how to blush. His people, they don't know how to blush. And then the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter five gives these well-known words. He says, blessed are those who mourn 
for they shall be comforted. Here's a question for you this morning. What do you do when you know that you should mourn? When you know that you should be experiencing grief and sorrow? When you know that you should be remorseful, but instead of feeling that, the reality is we find ourselves unconcerned, unmoved, and unfeeling. Well, this is where fasting enters into the equation. You see, when when our souls are cold and hardened and calloused and unresponsive to the sin in our lives, to the brokenness in the world, when that's the case, when we're sort of just numb, the physical discomfort from hunger that comes from fasting can help jumpstart our souls and get us into the mood to mourn when God would have us mourn. In other words, fasting is kind of like this shortcut or this hack. It's sort of like a jackhammer that can soften our hard hearts and begin to make us feel as we should feel. Probably the best cook I have ever known personally was my mother's mother, Joe Teagle. She passed away about nine years ago and she was just revered and loved in our family. And she was just an awesome woman. She was wise, she was well-read, she was a great listener and she was like this amazing gourmet cook. And so it was really cool every time that we would go over to their house, there'd just be this amazing meal And it wasn't like she just had two or three meals she prepared that were really nice. I mean, she just was prolific, one after another, after another. It seemed like every time you ate at her house, there was some new dish that she was preparing and it was just absolutely perfectly prepared. Well, one evening, my grandfather and my grandmother were sitting down to dinner and they were having a simple dinner, vegetable beef soup. And as they were sitting there enjoying their dinner, my grandfather noticed that a piece of this beef in the soup was just really tough, very unusual. She was a great cook. And yet there was this piece of beef that he just couldn't really seem to chew through. It was just very unusual. And so he asked, hey, did we buy the meat from a different butcher, different grocery store? What's going on here? And her mouth kind of dropped and she said, this isn't vegetable beef soup, this is vegetable soup. You see, earlier in that day, my grandfather had some dental work done. And as that dental work was being done, he had his mouth numbed. And I know this is gross, but what was happening was he was chewing on his tongue. (laughs) Now, thankfully, (laughs) they caught it early, everything was fine. But I think there's a lesson in there for us, and that, that is this. You know, as much as we run away from pain, and as much as we run away from unpleasant emotions, pain is actually a sign of life. Pain is a sign of health, and it really serves and protects us very well. It's actually the lack of feeling, the lack of sensation that most endangers us. And so... 
when we find that our emotional response to the sin in our lives and to the brokenness in the world is misaligned with God's emotional response, that can be an amazing time to do a fast. Because if we're yawning at those things that break the heart of God, we need something to help us nurse this hard, cold heart back to life. And the physical pain of hunger can serve as this sort of strange back door that can help our souls and spirits get into the right frame of mind. Our final verse comes in verse 18 of chapter six. And I'll pick up in 17 just to sort of make sure we're tracking here. In verse 17, Jesus says, when you fast, I want you to anoint your head and wash your face. Why? That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret, not might, not oftentimes, not occasionally, but will reward you. Let's say will reward you together, please. Will reward you. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, secret fasting will be rewarded. Now, probably the most important word in that statement is the word secret, because let's be honest, all of us have known people, perhaps we've been guilty ourselves, of fasting from something, perhaps at Lent, and we seem to find a way to naturally work it into seemingly every conversation we're a part of. It's not what Jesus has in mind here. Sure, there might be a time that you need to disclose to someone you're fasting, right? If they're inviting you to lunch and you're saying, no, thank you, and you're coming across as a jerk, it might be appropriate to say, hey, just wanna let you know I'm fasting for whatever reason right now. But generally speaking, when we fast, we are to do everything within our power to keep it under wraps, to keep it a secret. And according to Jesus, when his children fast in secret, when we do that, we absolutely will be rewarded. And so in our last few minutes, as we wrap up today, I simply wanna share with you three different ways in which God rewards his children when they secretly fast. Because I realize this takes a lot of discipline. This is not a practice in many of our lives, but I want you to see the fruit that can come from fasting. So let's turn our attention in our last few minutes to how God might reward you if you fast in secret. First of all, he might give you clarity with decision-making. All of us want a crystal ball, don't we? All of us want to know the future. All of us want to know what's going to happen next week and next year and a decade from now. I mean, if we knew that, we would do a lot of things differently with our finances, with our real estate, with our health, with our relationships. We all want to know the future but we don't know the future and the rub comes in because we still have to make decisions. So how do you make decisions well? Well, there is a pattern in the scriptures of decision-making going well when people fast. Look at the example in Acts chapter 13, verses one through two. Acts chapter 13, verse one through two. It says, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And while they were worshiping the Lord and catch this and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now think about this. The church is in its infancy and you have the early church gathering together for worship, no doubt prayer and they're fasting. 
And it's with that backdrop that the Holy Spirit brings this crystal clear message set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Fasting at times is rewarded with clarity, with decision-making. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 14, verses, uh, verse 23, rather. There it says, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now think about this. The apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're going out. They're preaching the gospel. People are coming to faith. Churches are being planted. It is a huge matter of importance that they appoint the right shepherds, leaders, elders, overseers. So how do they go about this task of seeking God's wisdom and blessing and clarity? We see it clearly. They're fasting and it brings great clarity. In Luke chapter six, verses 12 through 13, we have the Lord Jesus all by himself praying literally all night. It says this, one day Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Now, to be clear, that does not say Jesus was fasting, but if you think about it, he's in this remote secluded area in the darkness of night in the first century praying all night. It seems plausible, perhaps even likely to me that Jesus, who was known for fasting, probably spent time fasting as well as praying before choosing the 12 apostles. I think it's clear we see this pattern again and again when it comes to making big decisions. Fasting can bring great clarity and fruitfulness to our decision-making. Second way in which God might reward you if you take him up on this challenge to fast in secret is this, he might answer your prayers. And by that, I mean granting you the request that you're asking for. We see this many times in the Bible. We just have one example from Jonah for the sake of time. But if you remember a few months ago, as we were going through the story of Jonah and studying through the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, God tells Jonah to bring a message of judgment to the Ninevites. Jonah eventually does so. And here is how the king and the nation of Nineveh responds. Jonah chapter three, beginning in verse six, says, when the king of Nineveh heard that Jonah was saying these, these things, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. And then we see in the following verses what happens. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. They say to themselves, perhaps if we do this, God will relent and forgive us. And it says, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he threatened. In other words, this unbelievably wicked nation of Nineveh who are brought this message of judgment, when they in humility fast and pray 
and forsake their evil deeds, God relents of the punishment he was planning to bring upon them. You know, we mentioned Hannah a little earlier who struggled with infertility. And just so you can understand, infertility is a big enough challenge in our culture. But back in Bible times, it was a huge challenge because not only was there that maternal drive and that desire to have a family and children, but your children were your retirement plan, okay? There is no social security in place. And so if you're a married couple and your husband dies first, your retirement plan and your security, that's your kids. And so to not have kids was horrible for many, many different reasons. And we don't have time to go there, but if you went to 1 Samuel chapter one, you would see Hannah who struggled with infertility, kept drawing near to the Lord through prayer and fasting, and eventually was given the gift of a son who went on to become Samuel. Why should we consider taking God up on this challenge to fast in secret? Well, the second reason this morning is simply this, because God very well may answer your prayer requests. Third and finally, another way in which God might reward you is by giving you more of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, we read this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And just a quick show of hands, how many people here would like more of those qualities in your life? Anyone besides me? Okay, this is the whole room. Who wouldn't want more love and peace and joy and self-control? Well, the scriptures teach that that is produced by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. But how does that come about? Well, if you were to go to the very next chapter in Galatians chapter six, you would read, you reap what you sow. If you sow to your evil flesh, you're gonna reap things from your evil flesh. And if you sow to the things of God and to the spirit, then you're going to reap from the things of God and the spirit. And so the principle is basically this, whatever you plant in water is what's going to come up in your life. And so if we want more love, if we want more joy, if we want more peace and patience, then we should plant and water to the Spirit. And one of the primary ways we can do that is by not only praying in secret, but by fasting in secret. Because consistently throughout the scriptures, when God's people pray and fast in secret, God not only guides their decision-making and blesses their decision-making, God not only grants them their requests, but he also fills their lives and hearts with more love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and resiliency and strength. And so if we want to see more of those qualities in our lives, then I would suggest to you that we take this challenge that Jesus gives us to fast in secret Seriously. You know, if the world can conjure up the self-discipline required to fast for physical health and benefits, how much more should the people of God be motivated to fast in secret for all of its many spiritual benefits, knowing that our heavenly father promises to bless us and to fill our cup until it overflows. 
Now, if you're here today and you have a physical health issue, perhaps you're diabetic or maybe you're pregnant or could be pregnant or maybe you're someone that deals with body image issues. Well, hey, maybe a good next step for you is not fasting from food. Maybe it's abstaining from something else in your life. But for the rest of us, just imagine the breakthroughs and the blessings and the rewards that the Lord might bring into our lives if we simply take him up on this challenge of fasting in secret. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, over the past month, we've seen the same idea showing up in three different ways, whether it's giving in secret, whether it's praying in secret, or whether it's fasting in secret, you tell your children This is how we are to practice our acts of righteousness, not broadcasting them, not drawing attention to ourselves, not being self-congratulatory, but by doing them as privately as possible. And God, your word promises us, Jesus promises us that as we give in secret, as we pray in secret, and as we fast in secret, to the extent that we do that, God might or perhaps, but God will reward us. Lord, help teach us how to follow Christ's example, even in something as challenging as fasting. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.